scripture. I guess I'll flip this light back on. I am super, super excited to go over these two names, and I almost wish I had an extra week to kind of go over this because there's just so much material. Uh, as we get started, I want you guys to think about a couple of things. Think about kind of the implications of these two, these two names, the I am and then the word. What are the implications? What's the response? What should our response be when we think about this? Um, what I also want to start looking at is the fact that when you dive into this, you know, Jesus just didn't show up in the New Testament. We're going to look at this, and we're going to examine how Jesus is woven throughout the entire Old Testament as well. Everything's pointing to Jesus. So we're going to look at that. We're going to examine that, and I think it's really interesting. Uh, and also. As I said when I taught before, everything I do when I'm studying the Bible is I'm asking myself, why? Why is it worded this way? Why is the word choice the way it is? Why did John use a word to define Jesus? Why did they use I am? So let's think about all of that as we kind of get started. Okay, so let's dive into to I am. I'm going to start with I am first. And we're going we're gonna to get into some language stuff and some etymology and... This is the kind of stuff I love, and some of you may be rolling your eyes, but just hang on and enjoy the ride. Okay, so where did he say that we first hear about I am? Where did we first hear about that? Exodus 3. And what's the scene in Exodus 3? Moses at the burning bush. And he's a little nervous. He doesn't want to go before Pharaoh. And he says, okay, who should I tell them has sent me? And God says, you tell them that I am has sent you. And in the original Hebrew, it is, I'm going to butcher this, but we'll go with it. Echia, and I have no idea if that's correct. Echia, which is a personal, uh, like first person. So he says, uh, I am, or I will be, is another translation. So as the video said, it's all about his eternal nature. That I am, I will be. Or also some translations uh, say that he will cause to be. Okay, so it speaks to his eternal nature, but it speaks as God being the one that causes everything to happen. And so that might be a little bit awkward for Moses to go before Pharaoh and then the Egyptians say, who sent you? And he says, I am sent me. Well, that's a little awkward. So God says, will you tell them? And what's the, what's the four letters that he spoke about in the uh, video? The tetragrammaton. This is where we get Yahweh from, the sacred, personal name of God. Okay, that's what this is, okay? So this is kind of the second person, okay? This is the first person, I will be, or I am. This is the second person, the God of our ancestors. He will be, or he causes to be, okay? So this is where we get this. So I, have you ever heard Yahweh? This is where it comes from. Now, how is Yahweh translated in our Old Testament when you're reading through the Bible? When you read through the Old Testament, how does it appear in your Bibles? Capital Lord. Okay, capital Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Okay, that is referring back to this, Yahweh. Personal sacred pronoun for God. All right? Now, this is, this is pretty interesting. So, 
Over time, Yahweh, if you don't know, there are several different names for God throughout the Old Testament. And I think that's great. And I really wish English had that. You know, we just say God. But they had Adonai, which is Lord or ruler. Okay, they had uh, Elohim, which was the creator God. They had El Shaddai, Almighty God, and several others. And of course, Yahweh. Now, over time, the Hebrew scholars, the Jews, the, the Yahweh became too sacred to pronounce. They didn't even want to pronounce Yahweh. So what they did was, they, so when scribes are, are, are copying the Bible down, they, didn't, they wanted to make sure that those who were reading it later didn't accidentally say the sacred name of God. It was too well respected to say. So what they did was, oh my gosh, hold, hold on marker, okay. What they did was they, the scholars took Adonai, they took the vowels from Adonai, A-O-A-I, and they inserted them here. Yahuwah, okay? Now this doesn't mean anything, this is gibberish. But they, they used it as a visual cue. So someone else is coming along and reading the text just so they wouldn't accidentally say the sacred name of God because it was disrespectful. They would use this as a visual cue to substitute Adonai, Lord, or ruler. Now what happens is, by the time we get to the medieval period and Christian scribes are translating the Old Testament, they don't know that this doesn't mean anything. So they get to it and they try to pronounce it, Yahuwah. Well, they're translating into Latin. Okay, so does this sound like anything that we would know of today from the Latin? Yahuwah becomes Jehovah. Okay, that's where we get Jehovah from, which is then translated Lord now. Okay, so this is where it all, this is where it all gets started. So in the context of Exodus 3, Moses is nervous about going before Pharaoh. So he, God says, you tell them that I am sent you. But what he's really saying here is he's promising Moses to be there for him. He's promising Moses to give him the words to speak that make sense to the Egyptians. Much like I'm praying to God right now that he gives me words to speak this morning that actually make some sort of sense. So in the immediate context of Exodus 3, thank you very much, I might need these later. In the immediate context of Exodus 3, he's saying, I promise to be with you. And I think there's a great application for us today that the God, Yahweh, I am, Lord, Master, Ruler, that God is going to be there for us to help us fulfill all that we are called to be in our life. And he's going to be there. Now, what's interesting, now let's get to this, let's get to how Jesus works into all of this throughout the Old Testament. Now, I said that I am, Yahweh, all this, it means he will be, he is, he causes to be. Now in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel, God is known by the name Yahweh Tevaat, which means he brings the hosts into existence, that he causes things to happen. He is the creator. That's in 1 Samuel. Now, with that in mind, think about Jesus' statement in John chapter 8 that the video talked about when he says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. So if in 1 Samuel, God is known as he brings the hosts into existence, and then Jesus claims to be that same God, suddenly John 1, 1 starts to make a little bit more sense, right? That in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and without him, nothing came into being that it isn't here, right? 
So then we start to see the parallels. Okay, so the Jews listening to Jesus that day would have known exactly what Jesus was trying to say, what the implications were. And in fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament was called the Septuagint. That was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the word that Jesus uses in John 8 when he says, I am, is the exact same in the Greek, Septuagint, from, from Exodus 3. The exact, so when the Jews of Jesus' day were reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament and they read Exodus 3, it's the exact same word that Jesus calls himself in John 8. So just short of grabbing their shoulders and shaking them, Jesus is making his point pretty loud and clear, claiming to be God, this Yahweh from back in the Old Testament. Now, what I'm about to tell you next, take with a grain of salt because there is some controversy, or not controversy, I guess, but some uh, differences of opinions, let's say. Now, Hebrew, like a lot of other languages, developed from ancient language that, languages that were based more on like pictographs, pictures, you know, hieroglyphs, things like that, and Hebrew was one of those languages. It started out in an ancient form as pictures. Now, of course, languages evolve and change. Our language is constantly evolving and changing, right? So I'm not saying that this meaning is, that I'm about to show you is exactly the same now as it was in pictograph form, but I think it's interesting. If you take Yahweh and translate it into the ancient uh, pictograph form, Okay, these are the Hebrew letters, um, I mean, these are the English equivalent of the Hebrew letters for Yahweh. Go back to when Hebrew was nothing more than a uh, pictograph language. This is what you come up with. These are the pictograph symbols. Oh wait, I wrote that, drew that backwards. Should be this. Okay, let me get this right here. And I feel bad for everybody that listens to this on the podcast later because this is kind of the visual portion of the class. Okay? These were the, the pictographs of Yahweh. Uh, an arm with an outstretched hand. A man with outstretched arms. A tent peg. And a man with outstretched arms. Now, like I said, there's differences of opinions here. But is it a coincidence is it a coincidence or not that the imagery of Jesus himself, a man with outstretched arms, a tent, a tent peg, right? Crucifixion, man with outstretched arms on the cross. Like I said, some people say this means nothing, that the Hebrew language evolved to the point that it's completely different and we shouldn't go back to these to make any type of application. I get that. But is it a coincidence that the very imagery of Christ on the cross is in the very name of God? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I also find it very interesting that when you say Yahweh, it's almost like you're breathing, you're exhaling. And it's almost, you think back to those Hebrew scholars, the Jews and the Hebrews of that day that were saying Yahweh. Every time they uttered the name, they're reminded that breath the origin of life, the breath of life, comes from the Creator. I find that very, very interesting. Okay, so what are our applications with the name I am? 
OK. What are the applications? Well, the video mentioned a few things about the characteristics of God that we learn from both the names I am and the word. Uh, one of, a couple other things I wanted to bring up is that God is immutable. In Hebrews 13.8, we learn that you know, God never changes. He always is who he always will be. Now, his methods may change. We do read about in the Bible about how God changes his mind. But who he is, the very essence of who he is, never, ever changes. And so I think you know, there are times in your life when maybe you don't, you don't feel like God's listening. You don't feel like God is close to you. Um, but think of it like the sun. The sun never changes. The sun is what it is. It's always going to do its thing. But we perceive differences in the sun. Why? Not because the sun is moving, but we're moving. The earth is moving. We have different perspectives on the sun. So the sun seems different. So ask yourselves, those times in your life when you don't feel close to God, it's not because God has changed. It's not because God isn't who he always has been or will be. It's because our perspective on God changes based on where we are in our lives, okay? If you, um, if you feel disconnected from a community of believers at church, if you feel disconnected, you're going to think of God differently as someone who's really plugged in and engaged, okay? If, you are, if you're studying your Bible um, on a regular basis, you're going to perceive God differently than somebody who only cracks open the Bible, you know, at Christmas or Easter or something like that. But also another thing to think about is that when God makes a promise, God is outside of, as we know, God is outside of time and space. So when we ask God for something, we're waiting for it. But God makes, when God makes a promise, we have to wait on it. But God is not waiting on it because God is outside of time and space. There is no time for God. So when God makes a promise, he's, al he's already made it. It's already happened in his existence, on his plane of existence, wherever he is. It's already happened, even though we have to wait for it. So the next time you're praying about something that you really want or you really need or you're struggling through something and you know that God is out there listening and you're wondering what's taking so long, for God, that it's already happened. So there's assurances that we can have in our lives that God is going to come through with what he says he's going to do because for him, it's already taken place. You know, it's like watching your favorite movie over and over and over again. You're outside of that time in that movie, right? You're outside of that plane of existence on the Blu-ray. So you know what's gonna happen. The characters in the story don't, but you do. And it's the same thing with, same, same way with God. He's outside of our existence. He knows what's gonna happen. His promises have already been made. And so we have to rely on those assurances even when it seems tough. Let's switch off now and talk about the Word. And again, why, why the Word? You know, Messiah, King of Kings, King of the Jews, you know, we hear all these, all, all these other names for Jesus, and then John comes in here, John 1-1, one, one with the Word. And, uh, but the Word wasn't new to John. So we're going to look at, again, how Jesus is kind of woven in throughout the Old Testament. Everything's kind of pointing, pointing to him. Now, um, okay, like the video said, uh, you know, John was writing to demonstrate two things. He wanted to demonstrate that Jesus was both God and man all at the same time. He had this dual nature of humanity. And the, the video talked about how Jesus uh, came and the Word became flesh. Literally, he pitched his tent among us. And so who's John writing to here? So John's writing at the end, towards the end of the first century, and he's writing... 
to both Jewish readers and Gentile readers, because he's writing towards the end of the first century in the larger you know, Greco-Roman world. So he has two, two sets of audiences here. So we're going to look at kind of the Jewish perspective on this whole thing and you know, Gentile or Greek perspective on this whole thing. So what John ingeniously does is John takes a, a imagery for Christ and he, that's, that's simultaneously applicable to both audiences at the same time. He gives, it, uh, he gives it a new meaning for both of them. Okay. So let's look at the Old Testament background first and in the, in the, in the Jewish perspectives on this. Okay, so we know that in Genesis 1, you know, God created. And then John 1, 1 and following says that, you know, that the Word was there with God creating in the very beginning. So then we start to look back at the Old Testament. Okay, let's look back and see where can we find examples of this word in the Old Testament. Okay, in Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So there's already a parallel between Psalm 33 and John 1. So John is using the word. He's talking to his Jewish audiences here. He's saying, I want you to know that Jesus does fulfill everything that you've been reading about in the Old Testament, which they would have known. Psalm 107, verse 19. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them for their destructions, delivered them from their destructions. Okay, prophetic. He sent his word and healed them. In Psalm 56, in God, whose word I praise, in God I put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? So there's evidence here of praising the word of God. Okay, so again, the Jews would have known of all of this as John's writing. But notice the parallel here at the end of Psalm 56. He starts out, in God whose word I praise. At the end of Psalm 56, verse 13, it says, For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So compare that, that's Psalm 56, 13, I may walk before God in the light of life, and in John 1, 4, the parallel, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, so you see that this wasn't, you know, just John making up something that sounded cool. I mean, this, this goes back all the way to the Old Testament that, that would have easily been recognized by his Jewish audiences. Now, here's something else that's interesting about all of this. We don't really think about um, different translations of the Bible except for English. You know, we have new, you know, the NIV, NASB, all these translations. Well, they had translations back then as well. And this is what's interesting because um, often, you know, people thought back, even, even back then as they do today, you know, people sometimes think of God as just being untouchable. You know, you can't, you don't, can't really know God. You can't really, he's just so far out there. Well, as the close of the New Testament, right before the start of the New Testament, like somewhere, you know, before Christ comes on the scene, uh, the Hebrew Bible starts to be translated into Aramaic, which, of course, was the predominant language that Jesus spoke, Aramaic. So, yes, they had translations. They had to take the Hebrew Bible and translate it into Aramaic, okay? Now, what's interesting is that in the Aramaic, there's this concept of the Word, of God speaking and God doing, uh, called Memra, M-E-M-R-A in the Aramaic, Memra. 
Okay? Now, don't gloss over just yet. So, in the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible, the word pops up even more frequently, which I think is interesting. So, for example, these Aramaic translations, in case you want to impress people at your next party, the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible were called Targums. Targums. And in Genesis 28, okay, for example, in this Aramaic translation of the Hebrew, instead of vowing that the Lord will be his God, Jacob vows that the word of the Lord will be his God. In the Targum, again, the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew, in Genesis 9:12, instead of a covenant between God and Noah, the covenant is made between God's word and Noah. Places like Exodus 20, verse 1, the Targums even have the word speaking words of his own. And in Deuteronomy 4, 7, the Aramaic describes the word sitting on the throne and delivering and receiving the prayers of the people. So again, this isn't, this isn't something new that John just made up. You know, this was a very purposeful statement to, to achieve his purpose for his letter, to show the dual nature of Jesus as God and Jesus as man at the same time. Okay, so when we put all this together, we see that Jesus, the Jews of Jesus' day, they understood the word of, the, of God to be much more than just communication. You know, uh, whenever we see the word of God in Scripture, whether Old Testament or New Testament, it's referencing both a message of, the message of God, but it's also referencing a person. And John was there to tell the Jewish readers who that person was. That's the Jewish perspective. Let's look at the Greek perspective. And he alluded to it a little bit in the video. Now, the Greeks, they had, we know that the word for word in the Greek is logos or logos. And to the Greeks, that was a very powerful idea. Because the Greeks, they were all sitting around eating grapes and wearing bed sheets and, you know, staring off into the, into the distance, coming up with wise sayings. They were, they were thinkers, right? And so they look at all the stars and the things that are around them, and they're like, wow, this is pretty impressive. And they're sitting around eating their grapes, and they're thinking to themselves, there's got to be some sort of powerful force behind all of this that, that created all of this, this designer. And that was, to the Greeks, that was the logos, the word. That was the impersonal, distant force that caused all things to happen. Now, remember in the book of Acts when Paul was on one of his missionary journeys, he's, he's strolling through the streets of town. He's looking around at all these statues, right? And they erected all these statues to all these different gods. There's a god of this, a god of that, and then he comes across this statue with a plaque. And remember what the plaque said? It said, to the unknown god. Just in case they missed anything. We don't want to anger any god that we don't know about, so we're going to just say that to whoever else we missed. And Paul said, I want to tell you about that unknown God. Well, John's doing the exact same thing in John 1.1. He's talking to the Greeks as well, and he's saying, look, to that impersonal force, that distant force, the cosmic force that caused all these things to happen, well, great news, I'm here to tell you who that is. And it happens to be one Jesus of Nazareth. So we start to think of it, we start, it starts to make sense a little bit when we think about the idea that, uh, you know, Jesus is the physical manifestation. I mean, he is God, but he's the physical manifestation of, of God as well because he came to earth. You know, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. It's like when we have a thought in our heads, it's, it's a thought, but it's still kind of, you know, in the ether. 
But until we speak that thought, uh, it's going to remain that way. But when we choose to write it down and you know, make it permanent, that's the physical manifestations of our thoughts. Well, Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, they're, they're three in one as we know. And so think of Jesus coming to earth as the physical manifestation, that physical manifestation of God's thought is one way of looking at it. So, that, so when our thoughts are visible in some way through uh, the written word, so is God's word visible through Christ. Okay. And of course, he touched on these passages in the video, but just to reiterate, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he's spoken to us through his Son. And he mentioned this again in the video, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. A little bit of background, um, this idea of the logos in the Greek goes back probably to at least the 6th century from what I read. Um, and again, it comes, they kind of credit it to this uh, philosopher, Heracl oh, I'm going to butcher this, Heraclitus, who discerned in the cosmic process a logos analogous, analogous to the reasoning power of man. And then later, the Stoic philosophers um, defined the Logos as an active, rational, and spiritual principle that permeated all reality. Okay. So, how am I doing on time? Ten, five or ten minutes? So let's get back. So th that kind of, that's kind of the quick overview of both I am and the Word. So again, what I want all of us to kind of understand coming away from this, is that, like I said earlier, Jesus just didn't show up, right, in the New Testament. That, that everything in the Bible is pointing to Jesus, going back to the Old Testament. If we look kind of behind the, you know, look in the corners of the Old Testament, we start to see Jesus more and more when we study. But then, as I said at the start of class, what does that mean for us? Okay, there are, there are implications that, that come with this knowledge that, okay, you know, either Jesus said, is who he says he is or he's a complete lunatic, right? So, what type of um, implications, I'll just kind of toss this out as we kind of wrap things up, what type of implications can you think of that this means for us in our lives today? One of the things that the author mentions in his book um, and in the study guide for this lesson is that he starts, he kind of looks at it uh, comparing uh, those that are atheists or maybe those that um, uh, adhere to evolution or those that adhere to the idea that things just happen by chance, that there's no real reason for it. We're just kind of, um, you know, mathematical miracle, basically. He compares that idea with, with the Christian belief. And... And, and the facts that Jesus is God. And he, the author says that it's kind of easy when you really think about it, it's kind of easy to see why people would want to go this route over here, that things just happen by chance. Why is that? Because it absolves us of all responsibility. It, it absolves us of accountability. That, oh, we're just here by chance, 
uh, it's a miracle. Uh, let's just live how we're going to live. Let's, let's live the way we want to live and do the things that we want to do. Uh, you know, just be happy that we're here. Whereas this other side, the Christian belief, when we come face to face with this truth that Jesus is God and the Messiah, now we do have accountability. And that's, that's a little bit tougher to deal with. And that's, that's the two com- comparisons that the author makes in the book, is that now we're faced with a choice. We have accountability. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who extends grace and mercy to us, but it also demands something of us in return. Not to earn our ticket you know, or stamp our way, but it's accountability to live right, to share that good news with others, and to live in accordance with how he wants us to live. And I thought that was a great, uh, that was a great analogy to make, a great comparison, that that's the, that's the main implication. You know, people, the author says that you know, people, they want to be their own God. They want to be in charge. And it becomes super, super tough when we are faced with this truth, and then we've got to realize, you know, it's, it's bigger than me. You know, you guys sitting here, you, you guys are, your feelings and, and, and are bigger than and mine. Your wants are bigger than me. And we've we got to give up ourselves. We have to give up some of our own wants to live the way Christ wants us to live, to live in community with each other. You know, I've got to yield to you. Um, that's what God calls us. You know, um, it was mentioned this morning in Chris's lesson about sacrifice. A church that knows how to sacrifice is a church that's going to that's gonna do great things. And that's the main takeaway I have uh, after reading through the lesson. But, yeah. Can I add about the, the word, something I like about how you talked about being Jewish and Greek, and I love how it starts off John, but I like that it connects to the, to the Jewish belief and the Greek belief, but it also corrects where they're wrong. So for the Jewish people, it was to say that Jesus was always there and you kind of missed him. Um, you missed that he was the Messiah. And then for the Greeks, you know, their, their big belief about, you know, this, this logos, I've always said logos, you know. I've heard so many different pronunciations. Uh, pronounce it. Um, but, you know, their belief was that, yeah, it was ordered and there was this, this cosmic power, which we still hold on to these beliefs secularly. Like there's, well, there's some higher being or some higher power that put all this together. You know, a lot of people were kind of, hold on to that idea, but they also thought that the universe was eternal. So for him to say, you know, in the beginning was the word, was to say that there was a beginning, which is different than how the Greeks thought. Now what's interesting now is, is, that, is most people are either believe, you know, they're spiritual but not religious, or they just hold to this sort of pseudo, you know, naturalistic view that all there is is, is this and we're stardust and so on and so forth. Uh, we do believe that there's a beginning scientifically, and so it's, it's to connect, but it's also to correct and, and to kind of fill the gaps where they're wrong, which I think is, is really cool. Yeah, yeah it's, de- it's definitely, like I said, about Paul and, and his uh, declaring who this unknown God is. Yeah, it's definitely about, like you're saying, clarifying, you know, for the Jews, you know, who Jesus, who the Messiah is. He's, it, it, you've been led up to this point all through the Old Testament. But yeah, and then to kind of identify uh, and put a, put a name and a face with what the Greeks kind of already knew, you know. Um, and so, I, yeah, and for the Greeks, and I just think it's, it's, I think it's interesting that the Greeks and all those philosophers centuries ago could just simply observe and realize, you know, there's something bigger here. You know, we don't know what it is, but there is something bigger. Um, I think maybe, you know, there's, there's common ground for us when we're speaking with someone who is maybe over here, more of the atheist side or agnostic side. The trick then is to, okay, how do we reach those people? You know, it's, it, there's a, what's the common ground? Well, but we can kind of take a, a, a cue here from John. Let's find out where the commonalities lie 
between us and those that don't agree with Christianity or don't believe in the Bible. Let's find, okay, what can we, what can we agree on? Where do we start and then go from there? Uh, it could be somebody, you know, that uh, can admit that there is some design to the universe. Okay, well, let's work from that. Could be somebody who is semi-religious but is just confused and has heard all these different things from different types of religions and different lines of thinking, and it's, it's up to us to kind of sit down and, and kind of clarify and say, you know, it all points to Jesus. So, yeah. Any other, any other questions, thoughts, implications? Am I early? No, you're good. Good, right on time? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for letting me teach today. I really appreciate it. It was awesome. Let me just wrap up real quick. Let me grab the... Yeah. I'll let you get the phone out. Let's see.